Listeners, welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim and I will be your host today. I hope to believe all of our listeners lived a week leading others towards salvation by the love of Christ. Lately, we hear about how we are living in a generation where society worries for the corrupt church instead of the church worrying about the corrupt society. This is very embarrassing and shameful. The church that is supposed to be the salt and light of this world and is not being able to manage its duties and instead being worried by the world. But if you refer to the Bible, God spoke through the voice of foreigners to the people of this nation who were not able to discern or went against his will. When do you think this was? Even now he speaks through the voice of the world for the people of his kingdom who are walking on a path astray from his will. An example that comes to mind is Abraham. God promised to Abraham descendants and promised to him he would be his shield, but even receiving this promise, it seems he did not understand his will. You can tell because he claimed his wife Sarah as his sister, not once, but twice. As a child of God who was not able to understand and went against God's will, at this time Pharaoh and Abimelech, two people of the world, spoke to him. Pharaoh says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 18 and 19, What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. In Genesis chapter 20, verse 9, Abimelech says to him, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me in my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. Pharaoh rebukes Abraham. He should have told him it was his wife instead of his sister. Abimelech tells Abraham what he has done should never be done and also rebukes him. This is pretty interesting to see that the people of the world are speaking to Abraham and criticizing what he did wrong. This also happened with prophet Jonah. It tells us in the first chapter of Jonah that the Lord tells him to go to Nineveh, but instead he runs away and goes to Tarshish. He finds a ship and goes below deck and falls into deep sleep. Do you think that the Bible was trying to infer that he physically fell into deep sleep? Or perhaps the Bible is comparing this to Jonah not being able to discern God's will and not being spiritually awakened. In Jonah chapter 1 verse 6, the captain of the ship says to Jonah, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, that we will not perish. This captain rebukes Jonah for sleeping. Don't you think this is a direct rebuke for Jonah's spiritual state? We'll come back to share more after our first song. is yours 
As Abraham and Jonah were spiritually dull, the foreigners rebuked and awakened them. Do you think maybe God wanted to use the voice of those foreigners to wake his people up? There are many lawsuits currently pending in the Korean religious community. Among them, a majority of it deals with defamation, regarding how someone defamed a certain church or pastor's prestige, honor, or reputation. Pastors who have been sued or charged of crime of sexually assaulting women have sued back for defaming their reputation. There was a pastor who was charged for false statements of helping his own son with health issues and used the church's offering money for personal use, but then sued back for defamation. But among these lawsuits that have been going back and forth among these big Korean megachurches, something very interesting happened because the judge of this particular case gave some advice to the church. From what was known, this judge was not a Christian, but the words he spoke were very Christian-like. Before the case started, this judge said something like this. A lawsuit has been brought up, but from a judge's perspective, I wonder what benefit this will bring. If you lose, it may bring great effect, but even if you did win, it is questionable that your reputation and honor will recover. If you would like to continue with this case, I will have to put away my unbiased thoughts, but there is still a limit to a trial. Therefore, not all of the truth may be revealed. Judgment will only be based on the present evidence, so the outcome of this trial may be tolerated and accepted by the world, but may not be for all the people like you who work or have relation to a god, and exactly what effect will this bring to them? I impertinently speak my thoughts as I feel this is truly pitiful. Don't you feel his words were very clear? Although the outcome of this trial may be accepted and tolerated by the world, but this judge asks what effect will this have on people like us who believe in God or for others who have a relation with a God. Listening to this judge speak of these words, I heard it as the Spirit was speaking to us through him.
I realize you breathe out. I come alive. Your word gives life to my dry bones. Your breath tells death they can ride on. Awake me, make me a living stone, a testament to your throne. I am nothing without you, I'm on my own. The only one who satisfies my soul. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is When He Appears, Part 2, based on 1 John chapter 3, verse 1-6. through 6. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Mark Martin. We shall be what? Like Him. Because we shall see Him just as He is. Those are powerful words. And everyone who has this hope of the appearing, right? Isn't that what the hope is? Everyone that has this hope fixed on Him, and the Him is Jesus, everybody who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. The Bible says that Jesus appeared, and it says it three times here in this passage, that Jesus appeared in this, in this chapter. He appeared, and he's going to appear. He appeared in order that he might Take away our sins. He appeared to destroy the works of the devil and he's going to appear to take us home to be with him and we are going to be just like him. The New Testament church lived in the expectation that the Lord Jesus Christ could return at any day. They were living in that joyous expectation. They were healthy Christians and healthy Christians and healthy churches still will be found looking for their Lord's return. Sick Christians forget Jesus is coming back soon. Christians who aren't looking for the Lord's return fall into all sorts of problems because they're not looking at Jesus. They're not looking for Him to return. It's a blessed hope. The Holy Spirit, obviously, when He inspired the Scriptures, bringing this to our attention because over 300 times in the Scriptures, in the New Testament Scriptures, the return of Jesus Christ is mentioned. That's a lot. 300 times. Jesus promised he's going to return. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. When he appears. It's not if, right? You see that in verse 2? We know that when he appears, we're going to be like him. It's not if. It's when. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, John is probably thinking of the promise that Jesus gave them when he and the other disciples were gathered around the Lord. They were very bummed out because Jesus was talking about leaving. And Jesus says, but don't let your heart be troubled. John 14, you, I'm sure you know this, but let's turn anyway because I love looking in the Bible. This is what it's all about. We're fed by God's word. John 14, 1, Jesus says, now don't let your heart, let not your heart be troubled. Trouble, being troubled by something is something we allow. And he's saying, let not. Don't allow your heart to be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go to prepare a place for who? Yeah. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will return again that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is promising to come back. He's going to come back again soon. And it's not going to be in some kind of a mystical, spiritual second coming like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Well, the Lord returned in 1914. Is that it? Or I don't know what the date was supposed to have been that he returned. Well, where? When? I didn't. Did anybody see him? No, it was a spiritual return. And only those with spiritual eyes can see it. Jesus said, I'm going to go and I'm going to return and you're going to be with me. And lest there be any misunderstanding, Acts chapter 1, let's just look at it for a second, is no spiritual return that people aren't going to know about. He's going to come back literally and physically. In Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, after Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, you know, here they are, staring into the sky. All of a sudden, two guys appear, and they're in white clothing beside them. And they said, and I wonder if the, guy, the disciples jumped about two feet in the air because they're staring there. And all of a sudden, these two guys are there, and they're going, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, this doesn't preclude the rapture of the church. We understand that the rapture of the church, the Lord catches us up to be with him. We avoid the great tribulation based on the promises of Revelation chapter 3, where the Lord says that he hasn't destined us for wrath, but for salvation. We understand the rapture, we go to be with the Lord during the great marriage supper for the seven years, and then we come back, though, with the Lord in with him Revelation 19, in the clouds, he comes back, every eye sees him, he comes with great glory and power and majesty, subdues the, the armies of the world and establishes his kingdom upon the earth. It's not a secret thing, it's a spiritual thing that nobody can see, it is a glorious appearing and he's promised that. And we're supposed to have this personal, this, this hope in Jesus' personal promise of coming back literally and physically. And he's coming back soon. He says, no, I can't tell you the exact date. And I want you to have a date because in everybody who's not, it's not even close people say, you know how procrastinating we are, right? They say, well, the Lord isn't coming for 30 years, so I can, <laughs> you know. Well, let's do, let's forget about that because we, you know, we would be saying, well, you know, I don't know, maybe you wouldn't, but I'm sure there are some people who would be saying, well, you know, because the Lord is coming back in 30 years, we could do this and this and this, and, and then, you know, we'll, in the last three months, we'll get ready. And the Lord is saying, no, 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 no. I'm not going to tell you the date, but I'm just going to tell you this. It's soon. You be ready. The date, an hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. But then Jesus says, be on the alert, for you do not know the day your Lord is coming. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. He closes the book. He closes the Bible in the book of Revelation by saying three times, I am coming soon. Though he doesn't tell us when. He says, I'm coming back suddenly, unexpectedly. I'm going to come back as a thief in the light night. And I'm going to come back like the lightning. As it's going to be fast, sudden, and whoa, what's this? The Lord's return. 
Of course, that refers to the rapture as well as the glorious return. I want you to know the tribulation has started. I suppose you could count off seven years and you'd know when the glorious return is. But the rapture of the church is going to be something also that we don't know when that's going to occur and we're going to be caught up to be with the Lord. I'm kind of meshing both teachings of rapture and second coming in the whole idea of the blessed hope of the Lord's return. It's phase one, phase two. Actually, the Lord's return was phase one when he was born, phase two when he raptures the church, phase three when he, we come back with him in the glorious appearing. That is kind of all the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, the great day. I don't know the date, but Jesus says, I want you to be ready. So going back to 1 John, let's just look at the passage that I'm supposed to be in. Realize that that he's saying everybody who has this hope, verse 3, fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Four things to write down about the Lord's return. First of all, the Lord's return and expecting Jesus' return. Let's say that. Expecting Jesus' return. Expecting Jesus' return, first of all, is going to change us. It changes us. When I realize the Lord is returning soon, well, some people have gotten motivated and been saved because they realize, wow, time is short. I need to be ready. We're living in the last days. Jesus said it will be like the days of Noah. The earth will be filled with violence. People will be seeking after pleasure and immorality, and they won't value life. The Lord says that it's going to be a violent time. He says there'll be birth pangs coming upon the earth, which we've mentioned before. Wars and rumors of wars will increase and earthquakes and famines and people's hearts will be failing them for fear, Jesus said, at the roaring of the waves. Okay, we kind of understand the picture. Now Jesus is saying, I want you not only to be changed by understanding that I am coming, I want you to be challenged by knowing that I'm coming back soon. It challenges us. Jesus challenges us in the New Testament to hasten the day that he returns. Why hasn't the Lord returned yet? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 gives us the reason. It's interesting. The reason is given in a passage is talking about people who are mocking. They're mocking us for saying the Lord is coming back soon. Oh, yeah, you guys have been saying the Lord is coming back soon forever. Where is the promise of his return? And Peter says, but it kind of escapes them that a day is as a thousand years unto the Lord and a thousand years is as a day, they forget that the Lord has simply been, basically says, the reason why the Lord has delayed is not because he is slow concerning his promise, as some men count slowness, but it is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish. Why has the Lord waited so long? Well, it certainly is because he isn't ready. The Lord has waited so long because there are so many people in this world who aren't ready. There's so many people who haven't heard, so many people who don't know, so many people who will get another chance in this life to hear. And forget about maybe even the people who've had one chance. What about, you know, the millions and millions? There are now over a million believers in the churches that have been founded by Gospel for Asia, and they're all working. But I just want you to know that, that there are people who haven't heard, and, and the Lord says, I want you to work Get those people to hear the gospel of grace so that they're not caught when I return. And they don't have to go through the great tribulation. 
So we can hasten the day of the Lord because the reason why the Lord is waiting is because he is long-suffering towards us, towards the world that is perishing. And so one time we're praying, Lord, come quickly, come quickly. And the other side, we see, well, wait a minute, Lord. If you come, this whole world is lost. And so it's like this, this tension in the Scripture. I want the Lord to come back soon for me. <laughs> but what about the lost world? Oh, Lord. And so, Lord, I'm going to do everything I can to hurry this up. I'm going to give. I'm going to pray. I'm going to serve. I'm going to witness. I'm going to share. I'm going to support. I'm going to put my... I'm going to, this is going to be my life, Lord. I'm going to live for eternal things because they're the only things that last. You're not going to take your house with you, your cars with you, your property with you. We're only going to take the Word and people. That's the only thing that goes on forever. Puts everything in, in perspective. See, and that's part of this. Everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself. It's, a, it's an automatic recalibration process. You just, you know, it's like, oh, I'm a, uh, we have a, a super intelligent copy machine in the office. It is so smart, I can't use it. I mean, it's too. You know, it walks up and it goes, oh, this is... This is Pastor Mark. <laughs> and I'm always calling one of the, the people in the office, Ah, oh, can you help me? I want to make a copy. It's not working. But I have learned that there's a button. Clear. And if I press that enough times, generally, I can put paper down like you used to be able to do and just press the green <laughs> button. There's, something happens and things get straightened out. Well, the hope of the Lord's return kind of recalibrates. It kind of just clears everything and we go, whoa, wait, I see. Ah, oh, there are mountains out there. There's something beyond me. There's something eternal. You know, doesn't it do that to you? I'm not afraid of the Lord's return, are you? Now, you shouldn't be. I grew up, we were scared to death of the Lord's return and yet the name of our church had Advent in it. You know, it was like, come on. But we were scared to death because we didn't think we were ready. You can be ready because you're in Christ. You're ready to go right now. I mean, He's our righteousness. He's the one that makes me ready and fit. And if you're doing stuff that you don't want to be doing when He returns, then stop. Because you're not going to have a warning. You're not going to be able to go, He's coming! Oh! This way. The Bible says He's coming in a what? Moment! In the twinkling of an eye. You're, not, you're going to be caught. Okay, you don't want to be caught. And he talked about that. We saw that a week or so ago when we were saying, and so little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink about away from him in shame at his coming. Chapter 2, verse 28. Having this hope in the Lord, oh, I said four things. Changes us, challenges us, motivates us. I think I've covered that right. It motivates us. Write that down thirdly. Please write it down. And fourthly, it purifies us. I want to be holy. I realize the Lord is coming back soon. And that's what verses 4, 5, 6 are telling us. Look, and, and everybody who's practicing sin, you're making it a practice, you're trying to get better and better at sin. Something wrong. Christians don't live that way. Real Christians aren't trying to refine their sinning. They want to forget how to sin, right? That's his point. And one of the greatest marks for you 
is your sadness over your sin. That's one of the greatest signs that you are a Christian. I know a lot of us were thinking, I've got to stop, but I, a lot of us, boy, I've got to stop, but a lot of us were thinking, we're thinking, look, just listen, we're thinking, oh, I can't believe I did that again. Oh, I hate that. I, I just can't believe I hate that when I do. Oh, I'm not even a Christian. Because the devil's right there tempting you to sin. And after you sin, then he's going, you're terrible. I can't believe you did that. How? You? Oh, and he's the accuser of the brethren, right? That's what the Bible says he is. And so, so then we're saying, I'm not a Christian because I sinned. And then there's even some preaching that feeds into that. People tell you, well, you sinned, you need to be resaved. Oh, no. Maybe I'm not saved. Okay, maybe think about it this way. One of the greatest signs that you really are a believer is that you hate sin, and you hate sinning, and when you sin, you feel bad about it, because the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts of sin. He never condemns a believer of sin. He convicts. Hey, 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 hey. Oh, what's that? He doesn't say, you're lost. He doesn't condemn. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But he does convict. Conviction is great. It's a sign of being saved. If you don't have that happening, red light should be going off, and flashing rather, and buzzers going off right now because that's a bad sign. Yeah, I'm getting away with it. If you're getting away with it, you're probably not saved. If you get caught and you can't get away with it, and the Holy Spirit, you know, he's, he won't let you get away with it. You know what I'm saying? Good. Lord, we thank you that you are coming back soon. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. We thank you for the challenge this gives us and the change it creates in our life and for the purification and motivation that it provides in our life. Lord, we desire to be a people eagerly waiting for you to return, hastening your return, working for you, serving you, supporting your work, praying for your work, getting together even more as we see the day draw near. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing love that you have placed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Wow, Lord. We praise your name.
All the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Please stay tuned as we are following a program that guides us to know what ethics Christians should hold, titled Christian Ethics. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with Christian Ethics. Sometimes when I counsel people, people will often ask whether drinking is a sin or not. There are Christians who say that the Bible doesn't say anything about drinking being a sin. They note that Jesus also drank wine and that James, from his letter, recommends the use of wine in order to justify their drinking. Their claims are right. The Bible does not prohibit drinking, but it does say being drunk is a sin. Now, during this episode of Christian Ethics, we will spend time discussing the topic of addiction, not just about drinking alcohol, but addiction in general, referring to a long-term usage or indulgence of anything as if to find life in it. Addiction has been a problem for thousands of years. The Bible records how, only in a short time after Noah is rescued from the flood, 
Noah becomes drunk. Even in Proverbs 23 and Romans 13, it repeatedly warns against the dangers of strong alcohol or of excessive drinking. There are a few reasons why drunkenness is a sin. First, excessive alcohol deteriorates judgment and perception. That is why people who are drunk often make moral mistakes. Some turn violent when they become drunk, and today there are thousands who have died due to drunk driving. Ironically, people who are drunk have their judgment clouded enough to think that they can handle alcohol better than they actually can. Second, excessive alcohol leads to serious health issues such as liver disease, heart disease, impairments to the brain, and other health-related issues. And third, you cannot properly serve the Lord while you are drunk. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 commands the saints, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Substances that get us drunk debilitate us from obeying God. Many people justify drinking based on the fact that people in the Bible drank wine as well. But many people don't know that in those days, people drank wine by diluting it in water at a ratio of 1 to 3, with water being 3 and the wine being the 1. They also don't realize that there is no difference in the Hebrew word for wine and grape juice. I would like to remind everyone that today's focus is about addiction, not alcohol. Alcohol is just one of many addictions that people suffer from. Today, people suffer from many addictions like tobacco, internet, porn, gambling, and many others. Because of their strong addictive qualities, it basically clouds people's judgments, harming their health and hindering their ability to serve the Lord. Some people cite health reasons and medical purposes to point out the positive effects of alcohol and marijuana. Although moderate alcohol consumption can have a positive effect on the human body, we need to keep in mind that we're not talking about moderate alcohol consumption or marijuana usage, but excessive usage. For example, when students are hanging out with friends, do you believe that those who engage in recreational alcohol and marijuana use are doing so for health and medical purposes? Unlikely, right? Moreover, we should remember that alcohol consumption for those under 21, as well as the use of most drugs, are illegal. The Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, that saints should submit to the government's statutes. So it is perplexing when there are movements of people wanting to legalize marijuana. But as I shared in an earlier Christian ethics episode, Submission to the government should only happen when the government's policies reflect the Word of God and does not go against God. There is something more important than addiction. It is the fact that the power of Christ's cross can save us from both these addictions and other evil sins. We should admit our sins and return to Christ asking for forgiveness, walking the path of this new life we have. Sometimes in order to start a new life, we need to disconnect ourselves from our old friendships and fellowships. Due to the physically and mentally addictive nature of substances that led to an addiction, professional treatment and counseling may be needed as well. Many cities have clinics that offer free services to solve addiction issues. People who suffer from addiction and need help can obtain help anytime they want.
The Bible says that our body is God's temple and that God's Spirit resides in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. The reason why we should protect our body, which is God's holy temple, from all kinds of addiction, is so that we can serve God in holiness through his temple. Of course, it does not mean that drinking will lead you to hell, or that not drinking will lead you to heaven. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify, as it is written in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. This is the message we need to convey to those who struggle with addiction. This concludes today's episode of Christian Ethics. I thank you for listening, and God bless.
The judge that was appointed to the trial regarding the Korean megachurch also said this, Because there is a lawsuit against one another, each party may seem like enemies to each other. But aren't you people who were once one congregation within the same church? I am pretty sure you claim that you are all working for God. But isn't it impossible for a person to say that my will is God's will? What someone else does can be God's will, and it may also be for you to discern God's will for yourself, can it? So I'd like for you to not hate each other. Although you may oppose my judgment for this case, I hope this trial will lead for you to respect each other and to find a good way to end this. How are the words of this judge so biblical? The congregation and the people who make the body of the church, who serve the head as Christ, the judge asks them how they can hate each other so much. Haven't we heard something like this from the Bible? People of the secular world only have one set of laws to follow, the laws that this world sets for them. But as Christians, we have been commanded to follow two sets of laws, God's laws and also the laws of the world. It commands to us in Romans chapter 13 verse 1 that every person is subject to the governing authorities. All of those governing authorities come from the root of God and also because God has allowed them. However, there are times when God's laws and the laws of this world conflict with each other. And what do we do then? Of course, we would need to follow the laws of God over the laws of the world, because we are of God. If I think about this again, to rephrase, God's laws are above the laws of this world, and the laws that rule over us are God's laws. But let's say, for someone that calls themselves a Christian asks the laws of this world to resolve their issues instead of depending on God's laws, what would that be?
For example, wouldn't that be similar as a graduate student asking an elementary student to help with their homework problems? The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, that the saints will judge the world. But why are the saints asking the world to judge us? There is something clearly wrong about this. We have God's laws that are above the laws of this world, and although we have the authority to judge the world, we do not realize this about ourselves, which is sad. We need to know who we are. We also need to know and discern what the Bible is trying to tell us. If we cannot realize, we are only inevitable to follow and listen to the worrisome words this world has to offer to us. I hope that we may have the spirit to discern the voice of God through the lips of the judge. As we wrap up, I'd like to share with you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 8 in the New Living Translation. When one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you are going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. If you have legal disputes about such matters, why go to outside judges who are not respected by this church? I am saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who is wise enough to decide these issues? But instead, one believer sues another, right in front of unbelievers. Even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and cheat even your fellow believers. I pray that all of our listeners will succeed to live as disciples of Christ this following me, as we will now wrap up unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, as it has been my pleasure, and I hope to see you this time next week, and God bless. I need you to soften my heart and break me apart. I need you to open my eyes and see that you're shaping my
trust what you say that you 